Thanks, Jan. Um, on a more serious note, I'm sure you've all heard about the horrific mass murder of Muslims in Christchurch last week. 50 Muslims killed while they were praying at a couple of mosques. And I just think it's really important for us to say that that's appalling. That's a horrific act of evil. And that as Christians, we want to condemn it uh, wholeheartedly without reservation. Because we believe that all people are made in the image of God. That God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for all of us. Uh, and that he calls on us to love our neighbours as ourselves. So racism, uh, murder, hopefully it goes without saying, uh, but they're completely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. And uh, lots of us have Muslim friends, uh, Muslim classmates, and if I were a Muslim, I'd probably be feeling all sorts of things at the moment. I'd be feeling sad and angry. I feel sad and angry anyway, but especially for them, sad and angry, frightened, confused. And I reckon this would be a really good week just to be a good friend, to say good day to them, ask them how they're going, invite them out to lunch, grab a coffee with them. Um, just no particular agenda other than to ask them how they're going, hang out with them, listen to what they have to say. Uh, it may not be the right week to try and evangelise them, uh, but it's certainly the right week, I think, to try and build some bridges with them, uh, to be a good neighbour, to be good friends with the Muslims around you. Um, and it's always the right time to pray for them. So it'd be good to pray that they feel safe in Australia. Uh, it'd be good to pray that uh, we as Christians would be good at loving them. Uh, and it'd be great to pray that they might actually get to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who knows what it is to see his own son murdered, uh, but is powerful enough and good enough to use that to bring about forgiveness and eternal life. So do look out for your Muslim friends this week. Please be praying for them. Uh, and in fact, Adrian's going to come and lead us in prayer now. Thanks. Hi, I'm Adrian, and I'm going to be praying um, for what we just heard. Um, prayer is uh, talking to God, and what a privilege it is that we have a God who listens and acts um, according to what we ask him for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for those in Christchurch affected by the horrific recent shootings. Be with those who are injured and grieving and their communities, and help those around them to be loving and supportive. May Christians in Christchurch be a light in a dark place. Help them to persevere in prayer, asking you for wisdom as they seek to love their Muslim neighbours, and we ask that you would keep them safe in this process. At this difficult time, help us too. May we love our Muslim friends and classmates well. We ask that you would be at work in us, that we may give them both practical and emotional support. Give us wisdom and soft hearts as we seek to genuinely listen and understand their feelings. Please keep Muslims around the world, especially in Australia and New Zealand, safe. May Muslims in Australia feel protected and free to practice their religion without fear. Gracious Lord, finally we ask you that you would bring these people to your son Jesus. May they know your abundant grace, your justice and your love for us but mostly your forgiveness in Jesus. Bring them to eternal life through him. 
We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, hello, my name is Josh, and today I'll be reading the Bible reading. Um, so today we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2. Um, so that's either, if you've got your own Bible, it's around the middle of the Bible, but it's also in your handout, printed in the middle. The words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all the labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, from there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king of Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said, to my, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and providences. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. 
The wise have eyes in their heads, or the foolish walks in darkness. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise, I said to myself. This too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The day has already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, brought the work, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toils, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair of all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave of their own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving which they, with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, last year, uh, LinkedIn did a survey of over a thousand Australian millennials, uh, people aged from 25 to 33, and they discovered, surprise, surprise, that 80% of those who responded said they felt pressure to succeed before they were 30. 64% said they were anxious about finding a job or career path that they're passionate about. 44% were anxious about finding a life partner. 38% about having children and 49% about getting on the property ladder. 51% felt frustrated by too much choice. Uh, And 29% felt that uh, they had wasted too many years in the wrong job. And a quarter of them uh, said they didn't know what their dream job was. And the report referred to all this as a quarter-life crisis. Uh, Of course, for lots of people my age, I'm 39, Uh, This whole quarter-life crisis business feels a little humorous because by the time you reach sort of 39 or 40, you're not grappling with the problem of too much choice. Problem is you've made your choices and you're grappling with what have you actually got to show for them? What have you actually achieved? What does any of it mean? The sand is more than halfway through the hourglass and what does it all mean? What's the point of any of it? But either way, whether you're heading for a quarter-life crisis, like most of you guys, or a mid-life crisis, like me, uh, then the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, has something very important to say, something that we need to hear. And he says it there in chapter 1, verse 2. Have a look at it with me. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or more literally, vapour, vapour, utter vapour. Everything is vapour. 
Okay, well, what does that mean? What's he getting at? We start to get a little bit of a hint of it in the next verse where he asks the critical question that really drives the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? This is humans toil a lot. We're, we're all doing lots of stuff. There's lots of labour. But what profit do we actually get from it? And he actually uses an accounting term. Profit. Uh, it's the what's left over when you've done the transaction, when you've done the business. And he's asking the question of, well, what profit do you get from life? What do we get from our work? What is left over? Generations come and generations go, he says, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And his point is that it all just goes round and round and round and round. It's all just a closed loop. There's nothing. (laughs) There is no profit. There's nothing that we add to it. All things are wearisome, he says. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Your eye and your ear never sort of say, okay, we're done now. No, they just keep going. There's more and more stuff, and they're never quite satisfied. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And you think, well, that's, <laughs> that's a bit bleak. That's a little bit, uh, bit, bit negative for the Bible. But he's not wrong, is he? I mean, what do any of us really add to the world? Not much. I mean, put up your hand if you know the first names of your great-grandparents. Maybe 10%, maybe 20 Hmm, that's interesting. And yet they were probably alive 30 or 40 years ago. And, well, there you go. If you manage to reproduce, and your children manage to reproduce, well, 30 or 40 years after your death, your own descendants won't even know your first name. That's how significant you are. (laughs) In verse 12, the author introduces himself. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And he's identifying himself with King Solomon. We learnt in the first verse that he's the son of David. Uh, And in fact, uh, Solomon is the only son of David to rule over Israel in Jerusalem. (coughs) After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. It turns into the kingdom of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. And it's Judah that's got the capital of Jerusalem. After Solomon, there is no king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
But whether the teacher actually is Solomon, which is entirely possible, or if he's just taking on the persona of Solomon as a thought experiment, either way, he's inviting us to imagine ourselves or imagine him in the shoes of Israel's greatest king, ruling about 900 BC with tremendous power, just fabulous wealth, extraordinary God-given wisdom. And it's that God-given wisdom that he decides to put to use in verse 13. He says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, that's a heck of a research proposal, isn't it? (laughs) Big research project. And what does he discover from it, from all his investigation, from all his wisdom? And remember, this is the guy who is the wisest person in Israel. He's renowned as the wisest person who ever lived. What does he discover? What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are vapour, are chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, when he looks at life, when he, he tries to think about what is actually worth doing in this whole thing, there's something wrong. There's something bent. There's something warped. There's something missing about the whole thing. Somehow, no matter what you do under the sun, that is, during your life, before they put you under the ground, well, in the end, it all turns out to be vapour. But why, you might ask? Well, why is it? Why would you say that it's all vapour? Surely there's something worth doing. Surely there's some sort of profit that we can take from life. One potential answer is the answer of the hedonist, that... Well, we can find meaning in life, in in the pleasures that we can take from life. So, seems like a, a reasonable hypothesis. Let's explore that in the research project. So at the start of chapter two, the teacher sets out to do the hedonist thing, to live for pleasure. But he rapidly discovers that it's just pointless. Verse two, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? What do you actually get from it? He tries alcohol, he tries stupidity, he tries to desperately find something worth doing and he undertakes huge building projects, he does landscape architecture, he makes houses and vineyards and he basically builds a Garden of Eden for himself. And he's got slaves to pander to his every desire. Verse 8, he says, I amass silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. And the point is that, you know, when you're not ultra-rich, it's easy to think that if I just had a bit more money, then it would all work out. I mean, obviously, I'm not getting the most out of life because, you know, I'm not Jeff Bezos. But if I had that kind of money, maybe if I were like Jeff Bezos or if I were Xi Jinping in China, maybe if I were George Clooney, maybe then, maybe then I would be satisfied. I'd have it all. But he says, take a look at Solomon. He is Jeff Bezos. He is Xi Jinping. He is George Clooney, all rolled into one. He's got it all. And he can't get no satisfaction. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, he says in verse 10. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I'd taught to achieve, everything was vapour. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. There it is, that's the answer to the question we saw in verse 3 of chapter 1. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Nothing, he says. They gain nothing. You think, well, that can't be right. Well, maybe it's true of pleasure. But, you know, we're all supposed to find pleasure bad, aren't we? You know, it's, surely maybe wisdom, wisdom would be good. After all, UWA, the greatest university in the world, says seek wisdom. Surely wisdom will allow you to take some profit out of life. And the teacher says, no. No, it doesn't. Chapter 1, verse 16. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And he's not puffing himself up here. He's actually just stating the truth. He is wiser than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before. And I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The great Greek philosopher Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. The teacher says, well, you, you might be right about that, Socrates, but what makes you think that the examined life is worth living? Jump down to chapter 2, verse 12. I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what's already been done? The answer is Nothing. Solomon is the peak of Israel's glory, the peak of their wisdom. No one ever succeeds him. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. I mean, it is self-evidently better to be wise than to be foolish. But we hit the critical issue in the second half of verse 14, chapter 2. The thing that's kind of been hovering there in the background all the way through. It's not a quarter-life crisis. It's not a mid-life crisis. It's an end-life crisis. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is vapour. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. UWA says, seek wisdom. And the obvious question should be, why? What's the benefit from it? Will it save you from death? No. might save you from a premature death. But it won't save you from death. And in the end, when death knocks on the door, you'll have exactly the same as the fool. You'll have exactly the same amount of profit as the person who didn't bother trying to be wise, who never bothered to study, who never put in all those long hours over the books, who never bothered to read their Bible. 
never bothered to think about wisdom, you'll have nothing. See, seek wisdom sounds good, but seeking wisdom in the hope that you'll be able to take some profit out of life, well, that's just pursue impossible. It's daft. Last year, my wife Shelley and I went to watch uh, Roger Federer play at the Hopman Cup. And uh, heading into the Perth arena, everyone was being stopped by security guards. And these were highly zealous security guards. Uh, there was no food allowed in. You couldn't take a water bottle in if it had a lid on it. No bags larger than an A5 piece of paper. And it all seemed a little bit over the top. They were kind of confiscating stuff off people as they were going in. But let me tell you, death leaves those security guards in the dust. You got a house? Hand it over. Got a car? Hand that over too. What about friends and family? No. Got to leave them. Uh, Clothes? Can I take my clothes? No way. No, no clothes. Oh, well, what about my body? Surely I can take my... No. No bodies allowed here. What about my memories? My intellect? My wisdom? No, I'm afraid you'll have to leave them too. In fact, you have to leave everything. Death is the ultimate security guard. Everything you ever worked for, everything you ever achieved will be stripped away from you. It'll be handed over to someone else. Verse 19. Who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is vapour. I mean, here you are, you're flogging your guts out at uni. And let me tell you, that's nothing compared to when you get out into the real world and start working. (laughs) And in the end, after decades of flogging your guts out, you don't get to keep any of it. You don't hand it over to someone else. What a stupid thing. And the person that you give it to, they might just lose it all anyway. There's nothing to suggest that they're going to be particularly wise. Verse 22, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is vapour. In Nausea, the novel by the great French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, the main character Antoine uh, starts thinking about life, thinking about the meaning of it all. And as he examines all the things that had filled and fulfilled his life, he starts to realise that all of them, his work, his writing, his friendship, even love and sex, they're all just literally meaningless. There's there's just no point to any of them. And he comes to the same realisation as the teacher of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Nothing. Nothing. Try as hard as you might, you cannot get anything out of life. There is no profit left over from the transaction of life. You can't take anything with you. Death takes it all away. Life is a completely closed loop. Everything, everyone. And when Antoine realises that, he feels nauseous. That seems to be 
kind of like what the teacher's experiencing here. That sort of horrible, clammy, cold, sick feeling where your stomach tightens up and you feel all vomity. It feels nauseous. And what leads to this nausea is not really living life as such, it's thinking about it. That's why with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Because you can avoid nausea. You can't avoid this whole nausea of life. You've just got to not think. You've just got to get up in the morning and have breakfast, go to uni, go to your lectures, eat your lunch, go to a lab, hang out with friends, go to work, hit the clubs, go home, sleep it off and rinse and repeat. Just do that for the rest of your life and don't think about it and you'll be fine. just seems a little subhuman though, doesn't it? You can get through the whole of life without ever asking the question of what you're gaining from all your labour under the sun. At the moment, we are living life under the sun. But pretty soon, we're all going to be under the ground. And what will you get to take with you then? When the lights go out and the last breath rattles through your throat, will any of your achievements count for anything? Of course not. What profit will you have from life? Nothing. Is there any excess that you can take with you? No. So what is the point of all this busyness and all this effort? I look around at you guys and you're very busy. You're doing lots of stuff. Lots of stuff that everyone else approves of. But what's the point? And people talk about having a bucket list, you know, the thousand songs that you must listen to before you die and the hundred places you must visit before you die. But when you do die, when you finally kick the bucket and your life spills out and runs into the cracks in the ground, what profit will you have compared to the person who never bothered to do any of that stuff? Won't you both be exactly the same? Of course you will. No wonder the teacher says in verse 17 that he hated life and that all the work that's done under the sun was grievous to him. It's all vapour. It's like chasing the wind. I mean, there's lots of activity. You're running here and you're running there and you're doing lots of stuff and then at the end of it all, you've got a big bag of nothing to show for it. Put it this way. If I said to you, after public meeting, what I want you to do is to go out to the oak lawn and just stand there and wave your hand. Just for, say, let's say half an hour. Just stand there on the open and waving your hand. What would you say to me? Yeah. Presume you'd say, why? <laughs> why? I said, well, no reason. <laughs> you won't gain anything from it. Well, what would you say then? Well, I presume you'd say, well, that's stupid. Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time doing that? But that's your life. (laughs) Isn't it? Lots of activity, but what do you have to show for it at the end of it? All your effort, all your study, all your work, in the long run, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. He who dies with the most toys or wisdom or whatever still dies. And you end up exactly the same as the person who never had any toys or wisdom or whatever. So if no matter what you do, the outcome is always the same, what's the point of doing anything? 
this is confronting stuff. Because death is confronting. Because it does strip you of everything. And you're probably waiting for the bit where I say, but as a Christian, you get out of this. No, (laughs) you don't. Do you really think that because you're a Christian, you'll somehow get to take your uni degree with you when you go? Or that if you're a Christian, maybe God will let you in with your BMW? Or your kids? Or your business empire? No, I don't think so. Death has a religious non-discrimination policy. In fact, death welcomes everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, straight or gay, Christian, Muslim, Hindu or hardcore atheist. Death will have anyone. Death will welcome you with open arms and strip you of everything. We need to think hard about this. And we're going to join the teacher of Ecclesiastes as he does that over the next few weeks. But we do need to think about it. We need to think hard. But almost everything in our culture is designed to distract us from thinking about this at all. It's designed to distract us from thinking about what Sigmund Freud called the darkness, the silence and the solitude of death. Because our society has no answers. All it can do is distract us because it's too painful to actually confront it. So it just tries to drown out the silence, the echo of death, because you can whack your earpods in and you can crank the music up. It can distract us from the shadow of death by the constant light of Netflix and YouTube to cover the fear of being alone by giving us this never-ending feed of friends to scroll through. People who don't really care about you and you don't really care about them. Because otherwise, we might have to stop and think about what our lives actually mean and what's the purpose of all the stuff that we're doing. I wonder if, uh, like the people who responded to the LinkedIn survey, that you feel the pressure to succeed before you're 30. Maybe you feel anxious about whether you'll ever find your dream job or career path, whether you'll ever find that life partner, whether you'll ever have kids or get on the property ladder. So it's worth just asking, why? Why do you feel anxious about that? Because it's not like you get to keep them. So why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you so busy? Why are you so distracted? Are you actually just chasing the wind? Lots of activity. Lots of grabbing at stuff. But all the stuff you grab at can't be held. You're like a madman who can't understand why clutching at the steam over the pot doesn't leave him with anything. The whole world is just frantically busy, hopelessly distracted, all pursuing impossible. When we actually need to slow down, we need to... Take a deep breath and listen. We need to listen to what God is saying to us through Ecclesiastes. And we need to listen before it's too late. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please help us to think clearly about our lives and our deaths. Please help us to listen to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.